It's no secret that distraction is a part of our world today. We live in an age of distraction. Exhibit A is this smartphone that I hold in my hand. You maybe hold one in your hand. Maybe you're scrolling through the Bible app or it's in your pocket. For all the uses of a smartphone, it can cause us constant distraction, can it not? Maybe this morning as you got out of bed, you grabbed your smartphone and started looking at the news or what texts you got or what emails you got. If you drive down the road in traffic, you'll see many people looking at their phones, distracted while driving. If you're waiting in line or you are waiting to be picked up or to pick someone else up, no doubt you're probably distracting yourself by your phone. There are other tools for distraction. And probably the, the situation of being distracted is not new just to our age. Although I would perhaps argue we have better tools for being distracted. The, the opportunities are more intense than ever. And yet what if I told you that distraction, in a sense, was by design? We are distracting ourselves for a reason. And this is what the 17th century French theologian Blaise Pascal said concerning being distracted, concerning diversions. He said, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. It's in those moments of boredom and quietness and silence that we actually have a time to think. And when we think, when we have time to reflect, we often reflect on things we would rather not reflect on. Death being among them. Death is perhaps the greatest enemy of humanity. Not simply being physical death, but being eternally separated from God with His wrath upon you. In that sense, it is right and good to fear death. It was Thomas Watson, the Puritan, who said, Let them fear death who do not fear sin. And we might would adjust that. Let them fear death who do not fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Let them fear death who do not put their hope and joy and treasure in Jesus Christ. Instead of ignoring the realities of death and wretchedness and ignorance, we need to confront the reality and ugliness of death so that we might discover its cure, so that we might discover how to be freed from the fear of death. And our theme for this, the passage this morning is humanity's greatest enemy is death, but Jesus has triumphed over it completely. And he did so in this passage by a few words spoken. Lazarus is raised from death to life. In the raising of Lazarus, in this passage in particular, 
I want us to consider just two aspects of this passage. The bitterness of death in verses 28 to 37 and the glory of resurrection in verses 38 to 44. Jesus' response to Lazarus' death shows the bitterness of death. But Jesus' raising of Lazarus reveals to us his glory. To consider first the bitterness of death in verses 28 to 37. Jesus' response, how he responds to Lazarus' death and to those around him, reveals the bitterness of death. Just how ugly and horrible death is. When we come to this passage, we start off with an interaction between Jesus and Mary. He had aimed for a private meeting with Mary, but those who were with Mary follow her, and it it becomes a public scene. And Mary responds in a similar way to, to the way Martha responded, to the way we saw last week. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, remember from last week, she is trusting in the power of Jesus. She recognizes at least something of the power of Jesus, but she doesn't quite understand his purposes. And isn't that true of us in our circumstances? We often are ready to accept and receive and understand the power of God, the power of Jesus. He can do anything he wants to, but sometimes we don't trust him for his purposes. If you're struggling with faith right now because of some circumstance, it's probably one of those two things. Either you don't trust him for his power or you're not trusting him for his purposes. You think perhaps if he had simply done it a different way, then things would be better. And if he had done it my way, it would be better. One interesting thing about the way John describes Mary, though, in her Coming to Jesus, she falls down at his feet. You look through the book of John, you look through other Gospels. Mary is at the feet of Jesus. Interesting interesting comment from John there. She is visibly upset. She is weeping. She's confused somewhat about the power and purposes of Jesus. And Jesus sees all that's going on around him. He sees Mary weeping. He sees the Jews who had been with her weeping also. And the scripture says in verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We see Jesus' emotions here in this passage. Jesus was not just a stoic. He wasn't just cold and calculated. He wasn't unaffected by the situations that were going on around him, he was deeply moved and troubled within himself. Now, the the word here for deeply moved is an interesting one. It's really difficult, actually, to translate. The other places in the Gospels where it's used, it's used of Jesus sternly warning people not to tell what had just taken place, when he heals someone, for instance. It's also used of people who are scolding a woman for spilling the ointment all over Jesus's face. It could have been uh, feet. It could have been used for the poor. Also, it is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament 
at least in one place, to refer to indignation or anger. And so there are many, in fact, the vast majority of the scholars that I read said that it seems that most English translations have softened this a little bit. And it's because it's difficult to understand. You couldn't translate it as uh, Jesus scolded in his spirit or he, he uh, sternly warned within himself. It doesn't make sense. But perhaps with this understanding of its use in the Old Testament Greek uh, uh, translation, it has a, a hint, it has a, a connotation, it seems, of anger, of, of indignation, uh, of deep turmoil within oneself. He is deeply moved when it, within himself. So even with the translation deeply moved, we ought to understand there's, there's a kind of a boiling uh, going on. There's a, a bubbling up of Jesus' emotions here, and he is troubled at what he is seeing, at what's taken place. He asked, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in verse 35, we see the God man crying, shedding tears at what he has seen around him. It's interesting also, the word used for Jesus' weeping is different than that of Mary and the Jews who are weeping, which signals at least something to the effect of Jesus weeps in a different way than we weep. The other words point to something of, of a wailing sort of mourning where Jesus, in confident hope, of what's about to take place, of what he is about to do, yet still shows emotion. He's mourning as one who has hope, as one who has trust in his heavenly Father to answer his prayers. We might ask, though, well, what is Jesus weeping about? What is he indignant about? What is he deeply moved within himself about? He knows that Lazarus has died, but he also knows that he's about to raise him from the dead. He has complete confidence in his heavenly Father that he will do this. What is he upset about? Some have suggested he's upset at the unbelief of those around him that are, that are wailing and they're mourning at the death of their loved one. Maybe there's something to that. He's also, uh, some, some also have suggested, and I think this gets closer to the point, that Jesus is confronted with the reality of the ugliness the bitterness of what death is. The, the effects that death has on humanity. The effects that it has had on Lazarus. The effects that it has had on Mary and Martha and the Jews around them. That they are in such turmoil. Jesus is deeply moved. Indignant, we might say, at the reality of death, which is the result of sin. Sin is not, uh, death is not natural to this world. It is completely unnatural. It has taken place because of sin. It has broken this world. It has caused decay in this world. And Jesus, as the one who created all things, looks on his good and marvelous creation and sees how it has been ruined by sin. And he mourns. He is indignant. He is deeply moved. And that makes me consider this contrast between Jesus, who mourns without sin and who gets indignant without sin, with us. 
Notice that contrast. What, what do we get indignant, deeply moved concerning? I went fishing yesterday, and I had great joy when I caught a big fish, and I had indignation when my hook got caught on some trees. I was, I was fishing, I was having a good time, and then I, I pulled back to cast, and, it get, and my spinnerbait gets caught in some trees. And I got, I got angry. <laughs> I got, it was bubbling up within me. I was angry at this inconvenience. Right? I'm out here having a good time, and I get angry because of a minor inconvenience. But isn't that how most of us are? Isn't that what we get angry about a lot of the time? We get angry about inconveniences. Somebody cuts us off in traffic, and, it, and the anger bubbles up within us. Or we get angry about something someone else does particularly to us, right? It's, a, it's either a, an anger about inconvenience or it's an anger about selfish, selfishness. We, we should have been treated differently. And yet Jesus is deeply moved and affected by sin and its effects on his good creation. Interesting contrast, isn't it? What do you get angry about? Do you get angry about your own sin and the results that come from your own sin, the effects which spring from your own sin? What, what would it be like if our minds, our attitudes shifted into alignment with the attitudes of Jesus Christ? I coached soccer this past season and one of the things I said over and over and over to our team was be aggressive out there have a little fight to you get get a little not angry but be aggressive go get the ball and they listened to me some of the time <laughs> thankfully but I think we ought to have kind of this mindset when it comes to sin we, we can be so helpless concerning our sin sometimes we can feel so defeated concerning our sin. Like it has control over us. Like we just can't win against it. Well, maybe we ought to be a little more aggressive against our sin. Maybe we ought to have a little indignation about our own sin and not just inconveniences or selfishness. Get, get angry towards sin that you would defeat it. And perhaps one of the ways you can do this is by recognizing all of its effects. When you sin in your pride, consider the long-lasting effects which will come from it. That would be a really helpful exercise. Get away for a few moments of silence. Put your phone in another room. Think about your particular sins and the consequences which come from those sins. And then grieve over that sin. When you see sickness and death in the world, understand that that comes from sin. Those are signs of death in the world. And remember how Jesus reacts when he sees the ugliness of sin and death. This reveals something to us of Jesus' humanity and also of the reality, the ugliness of death and its cause which is sin. We see the bitterness of death 
but we also see the glory of the resurrection. Now there's a transition here in verse 36. The Jews see Jesus weeping and they interpret that. See how much he loved him. And yes, there was something to that. Jesus did love Lazarus. John makes it clear throughout this section, his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. But verse 37, some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? He healed the sick. Could, couldn't he have healed this man and kept him from dying? Again, there's confusion about Jesus' power and purposes. Their assumption is sickness is reversible. If he had gotten there in time, if he had gotten there earlier, he could have done something about it. Sickness is reversible, but death is final. And notice how Jesus responds. This is the next verse, the next line. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, the same word, indignant, boiling up within him, this emotion, he came to the tomb. Jesus' emotions concerning the ugliness of death not only cause him to grieve, they, they move him to act, to do something about the problem, about our biggest problem. It was a cave and the stone lay against it and Jesus said, take away the stone. A climactic event. Take away the stone. And you could hear shudders going through the crowd. I like how B.B. Warfield puts this climactic confrontation with Jesus and death. He says, It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, And he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but, as indeed it is presented throughout this whole account, a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, death, Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. This is a picture of how we have been saved by the power of Jesus who has conquered death and hell. Mary's response to Jesus' words display that she didn't fully understand what Jesus meant when he said, your brother Lazarus, Lazarus will rise again. She didn't fully understand, even though she made the wonderful confession, yes, I believe that you are the Christ. She didn't fully understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. She says, there will be an odor For he's been dead four days. See, although she understood something of the power of Jesus, she didn't understand it all. 
And Jesus says to her in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Notice a few things about this, this key verse, verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? First, we see that we see the order that Jesus arranges things here. Did I not say that if you believe, then you will see the glory of God? The order is faith in Jesus. So if you believe, not just if you just believe, not, not in our modern sense of that, that phrase, but if you trust, if you place your trust in me, you will see the glory of God. There would be some around perhaps who would see the resurrection and yet would not see the glory of God. They wouldn't see its theological meaning. They wouldn't see what it means about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has the power of do, to do. But if you trust in Jesus, you will see his glory. We don't see in particular what Jesus is referring to when he says, did I not tell you? But perhaps it's back to verses uh, 25 and 26. When he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Also, probably a, a reference back to verse 4. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he says, this does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. We could also draw it, a line all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of John in chapter 2, verse 11. You remember the story where Jesus turned the water into wine at Cana in Galilee. And it says, Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Throughout the first 12 chapters of John, we have this word signs coming up again and again. The sign at Cana in Galilee of turning water into wine was the first of these signs, John says. And step by step, he's been showing other signs which reveal and confirm the identity of Jesus Christ as the one sent from the Father, as the one promised from of old who would come and save his people from their sins, who would come and change the world and rescue his people. And here in chapter 11, we come to his great and final sign in the book of John. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. It forms a, a bracket around this section of the book of John. In chapters 1 through 12, the word sign is used 16 times, and it's not used again until the end of the book of John when it is said that these signs were written so that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God. So that you might believe. These are, these are confirming signs of his identity. So this chapters 11 and 12 serve as a transition from the book of signs to what some call the book of glory. And we've seen that word over and over again here in this chapter. And we'll see it more. And in the book of John, this idea of Jesus' glory, the, the glory of the Son of God is pointing to Jesus Christ who is being lifted up on the cross for the salvation of his people. He gives the signs of who he is. 
And then he is lifted up on the cross in glory for the salvation of his people. Chapter 12, already at the beginning, we see Jesus being anointed for for his own death and burial. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Seeing the glory of God refers to seeing the truth behind the signs, this particular sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, and then also the theological significance of Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross for the salvation of his people. We see the glory of Jesus Christ in the resurrection, that he is the one sent from the Father. He displays this in his prayer I pray this not for myself, but for their benefit, so that they know that you have answered my prayer, that you have sent me. This is a confirming sign that he is the Son of God. He, his glory is seen as he is the light of the world and the life, the resurrection and the life. This, this passage is connected back to when Jesus healed the blind man, giving light to the blind, giving light so that we may see who he is. He is the light and the life of man. We see the glory of Jesus Christ in this resurrection in that this is a demonstration, a a visible demonstration of what he proclaims in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Flip back there in in your Bible. John chapter 5, 28 and 29. He's talking about his authority over those who have life and over those who have death. And he says in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Lazarus hears the voice of the Son of God and he comes out. Jesus conquers Death by simple words. Lazarus, come out. He exercises his authority over death and hell. And this is, this is a picture, brothers and sisters, of our resurrection on that last day. When Jesus shouts out with a, a voice, come out, my people, and we will rise up from the dead. As we've already proclaimed through song, he will raise us gloriously and we will be with him forever. But how does he do it? How does he accomplish it? He accomplishes it by what is foreshadowed here. The the death and resurrection of Lazarus not only is a picture of our future resurrection, it is a picture of Jesus' own death and resurrection from the dead. This is how he accomplishes our resurrection. Lazarus, died because he was ill. He was sick. He died unwillingly. And yet, Jesus dies willingly because of the sickness of sin that we had built up. That we had had. He takes our sickness upon himself when he dies on the cross for us. He enters into that which he did not deserve when he suffers on the cross. Jesus 
died as a substitute for our sins so that anyone who trusts in him, who trusts in his work, in his identity, will have everlasting life. In this particular example, the stone was removed naturally. Jesus said, remove the stone, and they removed it. But in Jesus' instance, in the instance of Jesus' resurrection, it was removed supernaturally by the power of God. Lazarus was raised by the voice of Jesus Christ when Jesus would be be raised by the authority of his own power. He says, I have the authority to lay my life down. I have the authority to pick it back up again. Lazarus, when he rose from the dead, was hindered by his grave clothes as he came out of the tomb. Jesus is hindered by nothing as he is raised gloriously in a body which eats food but can somehow pass through walls, who can shed the grave clothes and leave them in the tomb as he exits triumphantly. This is our Jesus, and he has overcome the greatest enemy. Worship him, brothers and sisters. Trust in him. Treasure him. Let's pray together.